Uh, well, again, good morning, church. Uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, for those of you uh, who are joining us for the first time, I want to say welcome uh, to you as well. So great to have you here with us to celebrate the coming of our Lord and Savior. I know a large percentage of our gathering uh, is traveling during this holiday season uh, as well, and they're, they're listening online, and so I want to say Merry Christmas to you as well. Uh, certainly, we miss you, uh, and we're looking forward to seeing you back with us uh, in a couple weeks. Uh, well, to put it simply, uh, this morning is going to be a time of exploring the wonders of the gospel. That's all it's going to be today. We're going to explore the wonders of the gospel. You know, the more, uh, the more that I think about uh, Christmas, and uh, this, is, I guess, is, I don't know, what is my 33rd or 34th, whatever it is now, depending on my eight, Korean age. Um, but the more Christmases that come and go, uh, the more I realize how easy it is during this uh, time of year to kind of grow numb to everything. Uh, I was thinking this week even that for me, uh, this time of year sort of seems like something that's just sort of put on repeat. Uh, Everything sort of seems to be the same. Uh, But anything that is put on repeat tends to become less and less meaningful. It tends to have less and less value over time. And certainly that's okay with, with decorations, when we put up those same old decorations every year, or uh, when we go through those same old Christmas traditions, or we hear those, oh my goodness, those same old bad Christmas songs. Um, but we must not, uh, we must not let that happen with the truths uh, of the gospel that we'll be discussing today. Uh, my encouragement for us today is going to be to fight the tendency uh, of indifference that can inevitably creep in uh, when we think about Christmas in this time of year. We need reminders, and that's what this is going to be today, a reminder of the old uh, but ever-fresh reality uh, of Christ and his coming. Uh, we always, all of us, need reminders of the truths of the gospel and the fact that they are not just some historic uh, artifacts or ancient Near East relics, but these things that we're going to be talking about today, they are actually life-changing realities. Okay? They are literally the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And so to remind us of the gospel today and the meaning of Christmas, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, a portion of scripture that some have called uh, the Song of Jesus, okay, the Song of Jesus. For those of you who are familiar with the Gospels and the story surrounding this, this birth uh, narrative and Jesus' is coming, uh, you may know that there are a number of songs uh, that, are, that are recorded uh, that we use uh, to celebrate and communicate uh, the good news of Jesus' coming. Okay, you see this with Zechariah's song and Mary's song, okay, the song of the the angels. Okay, we could have taught from a number of those today, uh, but today we're going to be talking about Jesus' song. And it's not that uh, there's actually a recorded song in Scripture that Jesus sang. Okay, we know that Jesus did praise God, that he worshiped, but we don't have sort of, I guess, a recording of one of his songs. But if he were to have a song, uh, many say it would be Psalm 110. We know that over the course of Jesus's earthly ministry, uh, he had a lot to say. Uh, And many times he quoted from scriptures. But did you know that um, of all of the books that Jesus most quoted from, uh, it was the book of Psalms. And of the book of Psalms, the psalm that he mentions the most, the the psalm that he refers to the most during his earthly ministry, that's Psalm 110. Uh, And that alone should tell us something, that this portion of scripture is very significant. So what is this psalm all about then? What's Psalm 110 about? Well, we know that Psalm 110 is a a messianic, or you might call it a a royal song. It's a a psalm that was was written to speak uh, of the hope for God's people in the the coming of their promise to Christ, uh, the Messiah. That's what it's about. You see, from, from the beginning of the scriptures in Genesis... Uh, there was a promise okay, of, a, of a Savior, uh, one who would come to deliver God's 
people, a king of kings, if you will, who would come to bring peace, forgiveness, flourishing, and and offer joy uh, to the world. And we know that as the scriptures unfold from, from Genesis, we learn more and more about this coming Messiah, uh, what he would be like, sort of what he would say, what he would do. But one of the most uh, significant portions of scripture that we have about this coming Messiah, something that reveals to us quite a bit about who he was, happens in the book of Second Samuel and was revealed directly to King David in Second Samuel chapter 7. At that time, we know that God himself uh, reveals to King David that this Christ, this Messiah, he would come from David's line and that the kingdom that he was going to have, uh, it was going to be from the Lord, but also it was going to be a kingdom that would be established and, and then last forever. Pretty significant, uh, quite a promise. So David, King David, receives this promise. He sort of has been given this hope. And then it's after this promise that this same King David, who this was revealed to, whose line this Messiah would come from, he's the one who sits down and writes this song in Psalm 110. And so David, what he's doing, literally doing, and we're going to see this today, is that he's writing this psalm about this one who is coming, this one who would be greater than him. He writes this song pointing God's people, and of course to us, ahead to who this Christ would be. That's the context for Psalm 110. And so today on this uh, Christmas, I know it's not Christmas Day, but we're celebrating Christmas today. I want to work through this psalm together to help us understand and to remind us of the identity of the one who came on that first Christmas. And so if you're taking notes today, and I hope that you are, um, you can sort of write this down. It's kind of how we're working through things. Is What does this psalm, or what does Psalm 110 say to us about who this Christ would be? We're going to give you three points to kind of run through this. Number one is this. Uh, This coming Messiah would be a God-man. Psalm 110 tells us that this coming Messiah, this one to come in the future, he would be a God-man. If you go back to our our text and we look at verse 1, it's revealed to those who are reading and those who are singing and proclaiming these truths that this one who is coming, who's not yet, but this one who is coming would be a man unlike any other. David writes there to begin this psalm. He says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, right out of the gate, uh, we can assume Uh, that the Lord isn't talking to himself here. Okay, I want you to know that. God here is not having a conversation with himself. There are clearly, in this text, two people in view. And so the question is, who who are they? Well, any time that you see that word LORD there, in all caps as you do there, capital L-O-R-D, I don't know if the font makes that clear, but that first word LORD there, THE LORD, that's all capitals, L-O-R-D, Anytime you see that in the Old Testament, particularly how it's written in English, we know it's referring to the name Yahweh. Okay, that's, that's Yahweh there. It's the, it's the sacred personal name for God that was first revealed to Moses in the burning bush. And so we know that Moses, God hasn't really directly revealed himself, who he is, what he's about. And so Moses asked him, like, who are you? Who should I who should I tell uh, the people that you are? He says, I am that I am. He says, I'm Yahweh, right? Yahweh. Literally, uh, it, it, it's, it's a word that was not to be spoken, really. Uh, there's, there's no vowels in there. It's not allowed, actually, in Jewish culture. Yahweh was supposed to mimic a person's breath, okay? And, and to remind us that God is in everything, and even in every breath we breathe. And so um, I'll do a bad job of this, but uh, rabbis would say, when you think of Yahweh, just think of a breath. It would be Yahweh. And that's what they tried to make it sound like, right? That God is in everything. Was that like everyone got chills, right? Uh, that's Yahweh, okay? And so that's the, that's the name of God that we're, we're talking about here. It says the Lord. David starts with the Lord. Yahweh has something to say. The Lord says something to someone else. 
Well, then we see uh, the second word, Lord, Lord, there. And that's a little bit different. Uh, that word in Hebrew is the word Adonai. Okay? Adonai. It's a little bit different. Most of the time that you see the word Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, in the Old Testament, it's referring to this word or this title, Adonai. And that word means one who is absolutely sovereign. And when you see that word, that's what Scripture or the writers are trying to communicate to you. We're talking about the one who is absolutely sovereign, meaning he has all authority, all control. And so if you were to sort of read this literally in English or as a, as a, a good Hebrew person, the way that this would read would literally be like this. Yahweh says to my Adonai. That's what it says. Yahweh said to my Adonai. Now, in many cases, okay, we know that Adonai, also, it's the supreme title for Yahweh. Okay, and that's why sometimes these two titles are actually used together or they're interchangeable. For example, I think we have this scripture on the screen. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 1, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right, that's an old, or not, that, not that old, but that's an older song. Okay, some of you might know that one. But it's, it's, it's a title or two names for God that's referring to the same, same one. And so these titles are sort of interchangeable at times. They work together to refer to the same person, to communicate his identity, his character. But what's happening in Psalm 110 is that God is talking to someone else, or Yahweh is talking to someone else who is, strangely, I guess, also God. And the picture here we get sort of, as I sort of think about Psalm 110 or thought about it, it's almost like uh, David is on the other side of a closed door and he has a glass. You know, kids are really curious. And so you can kind of picture David there with his, his ear up to the door, or the glass up to the door, trying to listen in. And he hears God having this, this conversation with another. And then he records what he hears and what he sees in this song. It's important for us to know again, before we even get, go any further, there are clearly two different persons in view here. And so who then is this Adonai in Psalm 110? If it's not Yahweh, then who are we talking about here? We know for certain, okay, we know for certain that this second Lord here, this capital L, but the rest lowercase Lord, it's referring to the coming Messiah. It's referring to the coming Christ. And that's not my opinion. Okay? All scholars agree to that. Even in the gospel accounts, Jesus uses uh, this text in Scripture to explain to the Pharisees that We're talking about two different people here. Even the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they knew that this second Lord in our text is referring to the Messiah, the son of David who would come to be the savior of the world. Everybody agrees to that. But the question is, why does David refer to Messiah here, or this other Lord, with a, with a title that only belongs to God and to God alone? And the answer is really simple, but it's extremely profound for our, our faith. The answer is that, that the coming Messiah, he would be no mere mortal. That he would be human, yes, but not only human, he would be divine. It was predicted a thousand years before the one would even come. He would be Adonai, God and man. And even more proof of that is if you continue in verse 1, you see it says that Yahweh tells Adonai what? He says, sit at my right hand. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now to sit at the right hand of Yahweh Oh, it's pretty deep. It's pretty profound. I wish we had a whole entire sermon. We could do a sermon series on this, actually. But, but to put it sort of hopefully really clear and simple for us today, to sit at the right hand of Yahweh is to have the high place, power, 
honor and blessing in the universe. Okay, no one could be, no one was this close to Yahweh. And so this shows that there's going to be this incredible degree of intimacy between God, Yahweh, and the Messiah, the one who is to come. And it also infers here that when this Messiah comes and when his work is finished, that he will be enthroned at the right hand of God. That the seat next to Yahweh, if you will, that will be the Messiah's rightful place. It's where he belongs. It's reserved for the Messiah and the Messiah alone. And don't, don't miss this as well. This seat, this right seat, what it ultimately communicates is that the, the one seated there, in essence, is equal in authority, equal in rank, and this is important for us today, equal in divinity with Yahweh himself. And so David wants us to know that this vision he gets or this, this insight he gets, this inspiration that he gets, he wants us to know, he wanted God's people to know that this one who is coming, he will be human because yes, he is going to be a descendant from David, but yet he will also be God. He will be Adonai. He'll be rightfully given that title and given the seat at the right hand of God. And so you might say today that this Messiah, he will be the son of David, and he will be the son of God. David tells us, he's telling you and I today, that the Christ to come, he will be a God-man. But not only a God-man, if you're taking notes today, number two, this coming Christ, this coming Messiah, he would also be a conquering king. The one to come will be a conquering king. Now, we read uh, Psalm 110 together. We were going through it, and a lot of you probably had maybe the same thought that I did when I first read it, I guess a while back. Um, It's a little bit harsh, and we're going to dive into this. You don't see Psalm 110 on a lot of Christmas cards, all right? You really don't. There are not a lot of like Christmas songs and joyful songs that are about Psalm 110. Okay, and maybe that's because it's a, a little bit graphic, okay, talking about using enemies as footstools, shattering other kings to pieces. It talks about the day of wrath, or my favorite phrase, it talks about like these corpses laying around, right? You don't hear many hymns and songs about that, right? Not on Christmas, right? You can sort of picture it. Right, the star, or whatever, and then you get a Christmas card, and there's a bunch of dead bodies on the cover. It right, that would be a little weird, uh, but maybe more appropriate than we might think. But because that's who's coming. But ultimately, right, this is all about the Messiah's judgment towards the sinners. Right? That's what we're really seeing in this psalm. We're going to break this down. Look at what David David says. He says this in verse two. I'll start back in verse one though, just for the context. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now we know that this, in in some ways, this picture of who this person or who this king would be, it's not entirely unique. See, when enemies were were conquered in the ancient Near East, this is a pretty harsh fact, but it is a fact, uh, that that the king who conquered, he would literally put his foot on the neck of the the vanquished or the conquered foe. It was a a symbol of of complete subjection, uh, humiliation. That's exactly what's pictured here, that this messianic one who's coming, this, this promised king, Uh, He would have complete and utter control over all of his enemies. That's what David is saying here. But what we also see here is that the rule of this coming king, David wants us to know that it's it's ever-expanding and it's guaranteed, which is, by the way, the promise that he received in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We see here in verse 2 that it says that the king's scepter is being sent out. Scepter, it sort of looks like a fancy staff, if you will. Okay? 
He says, the king's scepter is being sent out. And a scepter, it's a picture or it represents a king's rule and his reign. And so for a scepter to go out, it means that this individual's rule, this king, his rule is expanding, it's multiplying, their reign is growing. Okay, that's what David is telling us. He's communicating to us here, communicating to us here. And again, we know the, the certainty of this happening. It's a guarantee. It's assured. Why? Well, because he says there, it's Yahweh. It's the Lord God himself who is the one actually sending out okay, this scepter. It is God who is empowering this mission. That what? It begins in Zion, that's Jerusalem, but goes out to the nations, right? So David wants us to know, and every good Hebrew, again, would know that this Messiah who is coming, his rule and reign would be forever, but also it would cover the entire earth. That yes, it will start, and we can expect it to start in Jerusalem, but ultimately it will spread out to the rest of the nations. And then with that, we see verse 3, it sort of partners with it. It says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments, From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. This is perhaps the most challenging text in Psalm 110 to interpret. Some of you who have an ESV Bible in front of you, um, or maybe you have an ESV study Bible, there's a little note there, a little asterisk. And if you look at the bottom, it says, we're not entirely sure what the Hebrew means there. (laughs) Okay, So this isn't like we're clear in the Hebrew and then a bunch of English commentators came, speaking at commentators came together and they're like, we can't agree. That even the Hebrew is a little bit confusing here. Um, but it seems to be pretty clear right? that, that what this is highlighting is the reality that to this coming king, there will be a gathering of the Lord's people. In other words, there's sort of going to be this army that forms and, and surrounds him. And that those people who follow the Messiah... These people who gather together, they will be strong, holy, pure, and going out with him with with vigor, with passion, with devotion. In other words, this is a willing army or a willing gathering of people who are giving the totality of themselves to this victorious, conquering king. Well, then there's, there's more. It continues. Look at verses 5 through 7. I skipped verse 4. It's okay. We'll get back to it at the end. Verse 5 through 7. Look at what it says. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. This is pretty intense, right? It's pretty strong. David says, again, that this Messiah, this one who is eventually coming for his people, he will one day shatter kings. He will exercise his authority by bringing judgment to the nations. And it says that he will fill the land. It says, literally, he will fill the earth with corpses, with dead bodies. And in doing all of this, this conquering king will be, interestingly enough, it says that he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. In other words, in doing this, in conquering kings, in crushing those who are his enemies, this conquering king will be refreshed, he will be dignified, he will be exalted, and he will be glorified in his victory. And so it must be said that this, this coming king, again, it's, I, think, I think it's why he's given the term Adonai as well, but David wants us to know this coming king, he will be and is in complete control. He's completely sovereign. He will reign throughout the earth. He is empowered by God himself to be this king and to fulfill this mission. And when he comes, he will have 
a following, an army, if you will, of devoted believers. This one who is coming, this Messiah, this Christ, he will be strong, he will be favored, and he has authority. And we know that his name as well, it will be exalted, high and lifted up. This is the Messiah that is to come, the psalmist says. And he is coming to judge his enemies. That's Psalm 110. And let's be be really clear about this as well. That while this language here in Psalm 110, while it's a bit harsh, the, the picture here is not one of a mean or spiteful or unjust, unrighteous king. That's not the picture here. Not at all. The picture here is of a Messiah who is actually right in his conquering, who is right and just in his judgment for sin, wickedness, and rebellion. This is a holy, pure, and and righteous God-man, Lord, Messiah, who is conquering those who actually, don't miss this, who deserve to be conquered. And he will bring judgment on those who need and deserve to be judged. Well, before you you sit back, relax, okay, and exhale, like, phew, all right, man, that's pretty intense. Too bad for all those wicked people out there, right? It's going to be rough or hard for them. Let's be really, really clear, even on Christmas, let's be really, really clear on who the Bible, who the scriptures say deserve to be judged. It's the unrighteous. You could put it more simply. You could say it's those who are not good, if you will. Those are the ones who deserve this this judgment. And who's in that category? Who belongs in that category of the not good? Well, the, uh, the Apostle Paul gives us a little bit of insight into this. He gives us some good biblical theology in Romans chapter 3. I wanted to read it with you together. Look at what he says starting in verse 10. Romans chapter 3 verse 10. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. If you're a person who uh, has a copy of God's word uh, that you don't mind writing in it, Okay, I have two Bibles, one that I allow myself to write in, and then I have my OCD Bible okay, that I don't, I'm not allowed to touch. Okay? Uh, but if you have your, the one that you allow yourself to write in, I would uh, underline, circle, highlight some of these phrases. None. There's a good one. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. This is describing you and me. Everyone, all. And then he concludes with this. Pretty strong, if you understand, especially the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, they live for themselves. They only fear themselves. You see, we all know here together, it doesn't matter how long you've been serving Christ, if you're new to all this, or if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus. We all know that we are swimming in a world that is full of wickedness and darkness. We know that. All of us know that. Just read the news. Watch the news. Abuse, immorality, murder, oppression, sexism, deception, racism, elitism. Right? I could go on and on and on. The world is not what it should be. Okay? I don't have to tell you that. And while certainly okay, all of us in, in some ways are, are capable of doing some, some simple good deeds. We're all capable of doing some, some good deeds, right? It's not what we're talking about. 
Right? While there are at times seemingly glimmers of light within us, Paul says, no, we are in, in all, in all, in totality, we are actually part of the problem here. We are part of the darkness of the world. We are part and contribute to its wickedness. In other words, he's saying here, we all sin. We all do wrong. We all contribute to the corruption of our world, both big and small. And think about it, right? Who, who of us has a totally pure heart? Who of us could ever, or would ever dare even, to stand before God, before Yahweh, the Lord, based on the way that we are, we're living, based on what we do? Who of us would have the audacity to do that? Well, God, I'm righteous, so I can stand before you. Look at the list of things that I've done. I deserve to be with you. Who, who would dare to do that? Right, who, is, who is actually, in totality, who has loved God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength? And at the same time, if you figure that part out, good for you, but if you figure that part out, who has also at the same time loved their neighbor as them, they love themselves? None of us, Paul says. None of us. And if that is the case, then how will we escape God's just and holy judgment that is assuredly coming? How are we going to escape this conquering king who it's a guarantee that he will come, that he will put his foot on the necks of his enemies? How will we escape this promised Messiah? You see, the the reality of the coming Messiah as a conquering king, coupled with the reality that we are unjust sinners, is a terrible problem for us. What a Christmas sermon, right? (laughs) Some of you are wondering where all the smiling shepherds and the wise men are. Oh man, I should have went to the church down the road. Okay, just wait. Good news is coming, I promise. <laughs> Let's go back to the verse that we, we skipped intentionally. It's verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4. David is clear in this psalm, the Messiah will be a God-man who sits at the right hand of God. He will be a conquering king who will judge his enemies. And then David also tells us, number 3, this coming Messiah would be a forever priest. That this one who is coming, he will be a forever priest. And now we can look at verse 4 together. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Again, this is certain. He wants us to know. This is certain. It's been sworn by God. He will not change his mind. Thankfully, he did not change his mind. It says, you are a priest forever. Speaking of the one who is going to come, the Messiah. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we know that Melchizedek, little, little strange character in the scriptures, A little mysterious, maybe is a better way to say it. Melchizedek, uh, he appears, if you read through Genesis, he literally appears sort of out of nowhere to Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, We don't have a lot of time to go through all of this and all the significance of his coming and go through all of the, the ten mentions of his name in Scripture, but Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. That's what his name means. King of righteousness. And we know just a little bit about him, but what we do know about him is pretty significant. First, what we know about him is that he was the king of Salem. Salem being Jerusalem before it was called Jerusalem. So Melchizedek, he was the king of Jerusalem. And simultaneously, we know about him that he was a priest, which is very unique, very unique. If you study through history, even studies through the Bible, this is so unique because kings were, were never priests. And certainly, 
priests were never kings. Two different roles, two different jobs. Sort of different places even in the hierarchy, if you will. But here we have a king-priest who, again, is mentioned only a few times in, in the scriptures. Genesis 14, our text here in Psalm 110, and then I think eight times in the book of Hebrews, which we'll look at a little bit later. But, but what we're seeing here in Psalm 110 from David is that this coming Messiah, he is going to, to be like Melchizedek in that he too will be a kingly priest. That, yes, he will be the, the conquering king that we have talked about already. He will rule and reign forever. But also there in verse 4, we see that he will be this forever priest simultaneously. And that's so significant for us. Because what do priests do throughout the scriptures? What's their job? What's their role? Well, there's several things that they do. But two of their roles, I guess you could say, or jobs, are very important. Two of them, very important and very relevant to our context in Psalm 110. First, we know that priests, they offer sacrifices on behalf of God's people. And then second, we know that they, they serve as mediators between God and God's people. They offer sacrifices for God's people. And they act as mediators between God and his people. We know that this was the way of the Old Testament, right? You can, you can read all about this and go through the Hebrew history. Okay, there were rules that they had. There was a law. And, and, and coupled with that, sort of to support the law, there was this Levitical priestly order to the, these men who were appointed to, to cover and pay for the wrongdoings of God's people. Right? They would practice and, and go through this sacrificial system that allowed God's people to be in God's good graces, if you will. But David says that this Messiah who is coming, he will not just be any priest, like the priests that are of old, the priests that so many of them would remember, or would remember. He would be in the order of Melchizedek, David says. And so what, what David is, is saying about this coming king, this coming God-man, is that the one who is to come, he will be superior, actually, to the old Levitical order. That he is actually coming to bring a more permanent and a more lasting thing. That he's actually going to have an answer and actually will be the answer for people's wrongdoings, for people's sins. And therefore... He will come and bring a solution for the world's broken relationships with God as well. That's how significant that little verse is. The one who is coming, this Messiah, he would be unlike any other. And so you can understand, with all of these incredible characteristics and qualities, why this coming Messiah was so eagerly awaited for. You can understand the, the expectation and the hope that people had. You can understand that because he was all of these things, why uh, the Jewish people gave him the designated and rightful title Savior even before he came. And so the question for us then, it's not now who he would be or what would define him. But specifically, who is then this God-man, conquering king, forever priest that David writes about? Well, this Christmas, that finally brings us to Jesus. And while there are a lot of opinions about Jesus out there in our world today, about what Jesus did, about what he what he said, who he was. Who did Jesus himself claim to be? Who did Jesus himself claim to be? Well, he, he said a lot about himself. And we could go, again, on and on about this for, for months. But one that I want to highlight to you, or an instance I want to highlight to you, is the time when Jesus was arrested 
and he was brought on trial before the high priest Caiaphas the night before his death by crucifixion. He's on trial. It's an illegal trial, by the way. You were not allowed to try a man at night. But he's brought in at night secretly. There's supposed to be multiple eyewitnesses. There wasn't. The whole thing was unjust. But at one point, the high priest, Caiaphas, he's so upset, he's so frustrated, he's so intimidated, and he's so threatened by this man, Jesus, that he just comes out directly and asks him a really simple question. We can see this in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 61. He says this. Look at this. He says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He says, Are you the Messiah? Just come out and tell us. Are you the Son of Man, the Son of God? Are you the one that the Scriptures prophesied about? Are you the fulfillment of Psalm 110? And what does Jesus say? And Jesus said, I am. He could have stopped there. But he doesn't. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the, what does he say? Right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments, that's his high priestly robe, and he said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. In other words, that's enough. Crucify him. He's worthy of death. Jesus tells the high priest, the people in the order of the Sanhedrin, those who are listening, he says, I am the God-man. I am the one you have been waiting for. I'm God who has come in the flesh. I'm the one who will be seated at the right hand of Yahweh. The one who will be glorified in that, that term, coming on the clouds. He says, I am the one who is coming, who will be magnified, exalted, just as Psalm 110 says, and the significance of coming on the clouds. I am the one who is coming to judge. It's me. Jesus is absolutely powerful as God, which is why he could cast out demons, heal the sick, speak with authority, and forgive sin. But at the same time, he was personal as a human, which is why he ate with his followers, walked with them, talked with them, wept with them. Jesus says, he proclaimed in front of the high priest, I am the God-man. And that is why the high priest rips his robe, which, by the way, is not allowed. Not allowed. Only on one condition. Blasphemy. A man claiming to be God. What more do we have to hear? He has claimed to be Psalm 110. He has claimed to be God. Crucify him. At the same time, Jesus claimed to be the conquering king. I already explained this by coming on the clouds, but more specifically, he, he came and he talked about how he'll judge the world. In Matthew 25, I think we have this as well. He said this, When the Son of Man, which by the way, he's already described himself as the Son of Man. It's the title he uses the most for himself. He says, Me, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. There it is again. I will sit on the throne as king in my rightful place. Verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations. There it is again. See that gathering of people. And he will separate. That's the word judge. There it is again. He will separate people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Or look at what Hebrews says of Jesus. The author of Hebrews, he says this. Couldn't be more specific. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. He says, But of the Son, that's Jesus, he says, that's God, God, Yahweh, says this of Jesus. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. What's the word? The scepter. There it is again. Psalm 110. The scepter of uprightness. Uprightness, excuse me, is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus is the one who will sit on the throne and is sitting on the throne as king. He will judge the nations. 
His rule is endless. And his reign is ever expanding. And notice again, just because we're on this psalm today, 110, notice this is all Psalm 110, what we're talking about. Jesus is the fulfillment of David's words who will stomp out his enemies, confront sin, and make all things right. But thank the Lord that Jesus is also our forever priest. He's not just the God-man. That's pretty good. (laughs) He's not just the conquering king. Again, pretty good. But he's also a forever priest. Look in that same book, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 through 27. This couldn't be any more clear. Look at verse 23. It says this. The former priests were many in number. It says, there's been a lot of priests in the Levitical order. And why were there many of them? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That's pretty obvious. They could no longer continue to serve as priests because they, they die. But he, that's Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need. This Messiah, Jesus, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First, for his own sins. Why? Because he knew no sin. He never sinned. But then for those of the people, why? Why? Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus was and is not just a God-man. He was and is not just a conquering king. He was and is a forever priest. And Jesus came not to just offer sacrifices but to offer himself as the living sacrifice. And do you know what that means? Do you know what that means today? For rebels and enemies, for those of us who are not good, do you know what that means? It means that this Christmas, and always, that there is hope. That when you and I come to our senses, (laughs) When we come to the place where we realize our rebellion, that Romans 3 is talking about you and me. When we get to that place, when we see the Lord for who he is and see ourselves for who we are. And then on that understanding, approach this God, man, king, priest when we ask Jesus for his love, for his forgiveness, for his grace and mercy from his judgment, because he is also that everlasting priest who sacrificed himself, what does he do? He welcomes us into his arms. Though we were once enemies, he now embraces us as sons and daughters. This same Messiah, Jesus who has the ability who has the ability to rightly judge the world the nations as a conquering king who is all powerful to destroy welcomes back into God's presence all who surrender to him by faith one of the reasons that i i so so love psalm 110 is right in the middle of this seven-verse song. Right in the middle is verse four. It's beautiful poetry. It's not an accident. It's written this way on purpose. Psalm 110, it shows us, it's the gospel right in the center of a world of judgment. It's hope in the middle of chaos. And that's why this is Jesus' song. Because that's who he is. Jesus is our hope in the middle of all of our trouble. You see, Jesus as king, 
He will, this is a guarantee, it's assured, he will judge sin and wrongdoing. He will do that. He will make his enemies his footstool. That's a guarantee. But he is also a forever priest who will forgive us all of our sins and give us his perfect righteousness to those who turn to him in faith. And it's this divine God-man, this conquering king, this forever priest, it's him who was born on that first Christmas. Jesus has come. He is reigning now. And he will come again. And so let me ask you this morning, what do these realities of the gospel, what do these realities of Jesus These truths, what do they mean to you? What effect do they presently have on your life? I mean like right now. What effect do these truths of the gospel have on your life? Are you in a place of joy? Are you in a place of hope? Are you in a place of of awe and, and wonder? Are you in a place where you're you're, you're in glad thanksgiving and worship? Or have you let these old truths of Christmas lead you to a place of indifference and apathy? Let me encourage us all this season to reflect back and ask our hearts once again. Once again. It doesn't matter if you've done this a thousand times. Let us all once again reflect back and ask our hearts, what would happen? What would happen if I genuinely believed the gospel and actually lived my life as if I do? The long-awaited, promised Christ has come. He reigns. He's coming again And all who call upon his name, Jesus, will be saved. That's the meaning of Christmas. Let's pray.